Today's reading is taken from Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was ill and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you ill or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was ill and in prison, and you did not come and look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or needing clothes, or ill, or in prison, and did not help you? He will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Well, good afternoon, everyone. It's great to be with you. This is the third and final talk in a mini-series from Matthew 25 about waiting for Jesus to return. We heard from Claire two weeks ago that we should be prepared as we simply do not know when Jesus is coming back. And we heard from Alison last week that we should be fruitful, making the most of our assets and talents as we wait. And this week we're looking at this final illustration that Jesus gives his disciples, that while waiting for his return, we must retain a compassionate kingdom focus. Now, elsewhere in the Gospels, when asked what must we do to be saved, the answer that Jesus affirmed was to love God with all you've got and love your neighbour as yourself. He put some flesh on those bones by going on to tell the story of the Good Samaritan. And it seems, friends, that the people we should love and help is not just the people we like or people in our family or people like us, but anyone we come across in need, including people we might be natural enemies to. And in Matthew 25, Jesus goes further. He tells his close followers just before his death. So he's pouring out information that really matters, a bit like the team captain just before kickoff. Here Jesus is saying, remember to have a compassionate kingdom focus 
in your lives. To reach out and help people all the way through our life journey. Not an optional extra. Not just something you do on a Sunday or when you retire or have some spare cash. It's an essential part of being a follower of Jesus. And notice from verses 35 to 36 that there are many ways to serve. Six options given here, but clearly they're not exhaustive. Well, what they all involve is probably our money, but certainly that most precious of all resources, our time. Giving our precious time to help those who are in need. And I want to briefly dissect this passage under three headings. One, this passage is not saying that salvation is from good works. Two, the key to living a compassionate, kingdom-focused life is not to try harder, but to see more clearly. And three, there will be a day of judgment. First then, saved by grace. Now at first glance, it looks like this illustration suggests that we are saved by our good works. Those who have helped the poor, the sheep, going to heaven, well done. Those who have not, sorry guys, goats, doomed to eternal punishment. But that would cut across and contradict the entire teaching of the Gospels and New Testament. And that's why it's so important to study the Bible and put every single verse and every single passage into context. So, for example, in Ephesians 2, verse 8, Paul writes, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so no one can boast. And John 3, verse 16, the Apostle John writes, Whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. The golden thread running through the New Testament is that we cannot save ourselves, not even by a centimetre, not by our own efforts, not by our moral performance. It is faith in Christ alone that takes us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. So what is Jesus saying then in this illustration? Well, consider two apple trees, if you will, side by side in September, perhaps on Sir Desmond Swain's 2,000 acre farm in Hampshire. Now you would, sorry, 3,000 acre farm in Hampshire. The farm itself is called Hampshire. (laughs) You would expect apples in September. Two trees, one of them laden with apples, the other has nothing. You would assume, therefore, that the one with fruit is alive and the one without fruit is diseased or dying. But the fruit does not give life to the tree, but simply reveals whether the tree has life. Repeat that, that the fruit does not give, give life to the tree, but simply reveals whether the tree has life. In the same way, the way we live, whether we obey Jesus' commands to love our neighbour, reveals whether we are spiritually alive, whether we have truly believed and taken his gospel message on board. James hammers home this point in chapter 2, verse 17. Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. It reminds me a bit of my old days at King's College London, just along the Thames there in the 1970s, studying law. To have a crime, you must have both mens rea and actus reus. I hope you all studied law, you know those Latin expressions. Both an intention and an act. Actus reus, mens rea. 
In the same way, faith involves both believing and action. Faith in action. And if you're still not sure about this, consider this question. If we can get to heaven, we can achieve salvation by our own efforts, by our own good works, why did Jesus have to come and die for us? What was the point of that? So the position is clear from Scripture. We are saved by faith in Christ. But if that faith is real, it will. It will be accompanied by good works, using our time and our money, our resources, to help others. If it's not, is our faith real? So the problem with the goats is not their lack of good works, but their lack of faith in Christ's saving grace. Now, I don't know about you, but I find this genuinely challenging when I look at my own life. I believe God called me into politics. You've heard me talk about that before. So I believe I have been obedient, and professionally, as part of my work as an MP, I suppose you could argue I am doing good works some of the time. But in preparing this talk, I became deeply challenged. What about the rest of my life? Am I truly reflecting God's grace in the way I care for those less fortunate than myself? I'll just leave that question hanging out there. <clears throat> Second point. The key to living a compassionate, kingdom-focused life is not to try harder, but to see more clearly. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, do you know what, that's Sir Gary Streeter chap, he, he might be from Devon, but he might just be right. I do need to do more to help the poor. I haven't been reflecting God's love in the way I've been living. I will do better. My friends, if you resolve today to do more to help the poor through gritted teeth, you will almost certainly fail in the medium to long term. I really enjoyed reading Animal Farm as a teenager and loved the character of the big horse, Boxer. Some of you are looking at me with glazed eyes. What the heck is he talking about now? It was a classic book that we all used to read many years ago. His response to every situation was, I will try harder. I will work harder. No matter what the problem was, Boxer would say, I will work harder. Now, we all know people like that. You might be one of them. I'm not. But if, if your response to Scripture is simply, I will try harder, you will run out of steam after a while. So I want to encourage us all today in response to this challenging passage which tells us that our faith should be accompanied by good works, not to resolve to try harder, but to see more clearly. What do I mean by that? I believe that long-term sustainable change in our hearts and in our lives comes when we see more clearly and understand and embrace who Jesus is and what he has really done for us. Maybe when you think of him, you think of him on the cross, dying for our sins. That's, that's great, but is it enough? It's now that time of year when we will be seeing pictures of a baby in a manger. And that's good also, to remember that he came from heaven as a vulnerable baby to live a perfect life, teaching his disciples for three years before his death. But I want to offer three other images of our Saviour today. Think first of him with the Father, and the Holy Spirit at the creation of the universe. The first chapter of John tells us that everything was made through Jesus. Nothing was made that wasn't made through him. Think of all that power and glory. Think of him as part of the triune God, God the Trinity, 
in an everlasting circle of love and preferment one to the other. Think of his glory. That is what he was prepared to give up, to come to us at Christmas as a baby. Reflect on that. Why, why would he do that? It can only be because of his love for us. Reflect also that on the cross, the physical pain was bad enough, but what about the moment when his father turned his back on him as he bore the punishment for our sins? My God, my God, he cried, why have you forsaken me? It was not a polite inquiry. It was a scream of agony. That separation from God as he took the punishment we deserved was the thing that broke him as he died for us. Then finally, after his death and resurrection, the third image I'd like you to reflect upon. He now sits in heaven with the Father, with all power and glory under him. There are glimpses of this power and majesty in Revelation chapter 1, and you can read that at your leisure. He's not in heaven now wearing sandals and Palestinian robes. He is so magnificent, we cannot gaze upon him. We read in Revelation 1, his eyes are like blazing fire, his voice like the sound of rushing water. This is the one who loves me and you enough to leave his glory behind and die for us. This is the one who now has all power vested in him. And this is the one in whom we trust. And when we see him more clearly for who he really is, our hearts will melt at the beauty of it. And we need, need not grit our teeth and turn out on a soup run on a Friday night. It will be our heartfelt pleasure to respond to this love for us by giving something back to those less fortunate. Am I there yet? Is that how I live? No. But it's a state of mind that I aspire to and work towards as my relationship with Christ slowly changes me. And I know that I will honour his commandments, not through gritted teeth, but through a changed heart. And if I were to pray for one decision by us all today following this short talk, it's that we would all individually receive a clearer understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done for me, knowing that the impact on us will gradually lead to a changed way of living. And third and finally then, there will be a day of judgment. To believe that there will be a day of judgment seems a primitive thing to say in an age where most people believe that all of this started by accident, there's no external force behind the universe, that we were here because of a big bang and billions of years of evolution. Most people believe this, it has to be said, by default. They've never sat down and thought it through for themselves. Most people have simply imbibed the spirit of the age, ignoring its many flaws. In stark contrast, it's a core tenet of our faith that there was a beginning to our world and there will be an end when Christ comes again. There was a beginning recorded in Genesis, the creation of the universe. Now, it doesn't matter how long it took. Don't get too hung up on that. What matters is that there was a life source who created our planet and us. There was a creative beginning, and there will be an ending when the Lord will come again in glory. And Jesus spoke about it often. The existence of these two conflicting worldviews provides us believers with a unique opportunity for the gospel. 
If you believe that we're here by accident and arrived at this state of being by evolution alone, survival of the fittest, it soon becomes clear that life is utterly meaningless unless we individually construct our own meaning. If there are no external absolutes, no absolute right or wrong, you cannot say to anyone that child slavery is wrong. Who says so? We think it's fine. You can't say female genital mutilation is wrong. Who says so? Our culture says it's fine. If there's no one out there to obey, we can do and make up it up as we go along. Everything is relative. Even love, they say, is just a chemical reaction. But here's the thing, friends. We know in our core beings that some things are wrong, just intrinsically wrong, and that there is an external bar at which we will be judged. And we know that love is more than just chemistry. The modern worldview does not chime with our deepest feelings and beliefs. And this gives us an opportunity for the gospel to explain our worldview, that there is a loving power behind the universe. We call him God. He created us with free will. We messed up and he has taken action to redeem us and make it right. And that one day there will be an ending to this world and a day of account for how we have lived. That there will be a day of judgment when those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, demonstrated by their good works, will live with him forever. So in conclusion, just before he died, Jesus reminded his disciples that there would be an ending, a day of judgment, and that they should live accordingly. And they did. That they should live with a compassionate kingdom focus in caring for the most vulnerable in their communities. And they did. And so the gospel spread throughout the world. And it still does. Amen. Bow our heads in prayer. Father God, thank you for all these wonderful truths. Help us today to see who Jesus really is and what, Lord Jesus, you've done for us. Amen.